Nick Yangu, welcome to the new school. Thank you. You are the president of the U.S. branch of the Ibn Arabi Society. Uh, who is Ibn Arabi? Well, Ibn Arabi is a remarkable man who lived in the uh, 13th century, born in Andalusia, in what then was uh, 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 part of the Arab, the Arab Empire. Andalusia, Spain. In Spain, yes. So he's a Western uh, Sufi. And um, uh, his legacy is quite remarkable. He is known now uh, and has been for many centuries as the Sheikh al-Akbar, which is, translates as the greatest master. Um, the Muhyiddin is his moniker, which uh, translates as the, re the revivifier of religion. So he's seen as a, uh, a momentous figure, historical figure, who brought about uh, an astonishing revival and uh, a breath of new life into Islam and uh, into the, uh, the Sufi tradition. And uh, has probably been one of the more influential figures in terms of his legacy and uh, the uh, the in endurance of his ideas. And um, numerous people have done studies on uh, just how pervasive his thinking and his ideas have been uh, and how they filtered through uh, pretty much all the Sufi orders uh, that have come uh, uh, into being since that time. So his, uh, his influence is, uh, is quite remarkable in that way. He influenced Rumi, didn't he? Yes, and uh, there are some people who will, uh, uh, who, who are, are uncertain to what extent that influence was direct. But there are. Wasn't Rumi's father a student either of uh, Ibn Arabi or one of Ibn Arabi's close colleagues? Um, yes, and in fact, um, <coughs> um, there's a meeting that happened, we believe, uh, in. Uh, in Damascus, where uh, Rumi's father and, and, and actually Rumi's whole family were fleeing the Mongol invasions and on their way to ultimately Konya in Turkey. And it's said that Ibn Arabi met them. Um, and uh, tradition has it that he said, upon seeing Rumi uh, following his father, how strange, there goes an ocean Follow, there, sorry, there goes a lake followed by an ocean. Oh, and so, so what, what this indicates is uh, Rumi's father himself was, uh, was, a lake. Was, was a lake. And Rumi was the ocean. And Rumi was the ocean. So Rumi's father was also uh, a great uh, uh, Sufi and a great uh, scholar. Um, but that's the meeting that I know of where, where Ibn Arabi actually may have met them both at the same time. Now, later in Konya, um, Ibn Arabi married a woman and inherited a stepson, Sadruddin Konavi. And Sadruddin Konavi became Ibn Arabi's spiritual heir. Sadruddin Konavi was a contemporary of Rumi's in Konya. And uh, there are stories of them um, meeting and frequenting it, uh, each other's uh, uh, conversations. And there is one event uh, that, uh, again, um, <coughs> one's not sure uh, how accurate this is historically, or this has just become one of those, uh, you know, one of those uh, 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 stories. But it's said that uh, Sadruddin Carnaby was giving um, uh, a teaching, and uh, Rumi walks into the room, at which point Sadruddin Carnaby uh, says, "There's no room on this uh, on this uh, sheepskin." for the two of us. So he gets up and allows Rumi to, to sit. So the sheepskin is the traditional place where the sheikh sits when he's giving his teaching. And so uh, through this uh, connection through Sadruddin Karnavi in Konya, where they are both teaching and roughly the same age even, I believe, um, there's a lot to suggest that there was this cross-fertilization of, uh, of ideas mm. and that Rumi uh, uh, imbibed a lot of what Ibn Arabi uh, had left behind through Sadr and Karnavi. Now, when did you first uh, encounter Ibn Arabi? 
Um, I first encountered Ibn Arabi in 1976, and I had um, been doing some traveling in Europe. I went to visit uh, my brother, who was at a farm in... You were born England. in South Africa. I was born in South Africa, yes. Came to the States? <laughs> I came... Uh, I, I, I left South Africa when I was about 20 years old, mm -hmm. traveled to Europe, and wanted to visit my brother, who was living on this farm in, in the South east of England. It was called Swire Farm, and it was uh, the first location of the Bashara School. And you and better tell us what the Bashara School I is. I will, absolutely. <laughs> this is my great pleasure to talk about the Bashara School. Um, upon arriving at the, uh, the Bashara School, I uh, found that people were studying Ibn Arabi very intensely. And uh, so there were a group of young people uh, this was the 70s. It was a very open and uh, uh, exciting time. Uh, and a lot of people uh, uh, that I met at the Bashara school um, were extremely enthusiastic about Ibn Arabi and Rumi and, uh, and, and uh, drawing out the essence of these teachings. And upon arriving there, I was very perplexed at first by Ibn Arabi. I couldn't really understand what he was saying. But something in me really resonated. And um, after a week of being there, I knew that this was something that was going to be a lifelong, a lifelong involvement for me. Um, so the Bashara School I discovered and, uh, uh, at that time, and it still continues. It's and called I, the Bashara School of Intensive Esoteric Education. Yes, and now it is currently based in Scotland. And uh, I'm still very much involved with the Bashara School. You were the uh, secretary for the U.S. for 18 years. Correct. For that the is Bashara correct. School. Right. Absolutely, yes. And um, the Bashara School is, a, is, a, is a, a, a new kind of school, one which focuses on bringing out the essential teachings of the greats, the great masters like Ibn Arabi and Rumi and others like Sudrin Carnaby and Jili and Jami. And um, it's a, uh, a, a non-religious, non-dogmatic, and uh, uh, oriented in such a way that the education takes place without, uh, without a teacher. The aim of the education is to immerse each person, each student, into this extraordinary ocean of, of oneness, which Ibn Arabi and Rumi talk about. And it, uh, it encourages each one to come to that core or that essential connection with the real, with reality, in themselves. And uh, in as much as teachers are helpful, that's wonderful, and there are facilitators and supervisors on the uh, courses that are done at the Bashara School, um, but the, the school is set up in such a way that, that, uh, that reality becomes one's teacher. Um, and this is, again, based on so much of what Ibn Arabi has uh, commented on when he says, for example, he who knows himself knows his Lord. This is a, a hadith taken from, uh, from, uh, from the Prophet. Hadith meaning? A divine saying, something that uh, Muhammad said. Not in the Quran, but... Brought Correct. down through transmissions that are checked carefully all the way down. Absolutely, these are these are transmissions or statements made by the prophet mm. that have been recorded and cross-verified by, by by certain scholastic methods, and um, so this 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 is one of the key <clears throat> one of the key uh, sayings that he he comments on extensively in many of his works. Um, so. Uh, uh, Coming to this core of knowing who you are is the key to knowing your Lord. And when you know your Lord, you know yourself. And uh, for Ibn Arabi, of course, this is a very, um, um, a very subtle matter because what he says really is that everything is the self-disclosure of God. And m as man, woman, this, this human image that we are, this particular self-disclosure is capable of knowing God as he is, he, she. Unfortunately, we, uh, 
uh, in the West, we don't really have a, a very good way of talking about this without using uh, a, a pronoun, a masculine or a feminine pronoun. But in Arabic, the word who uh, uh, refers to he, she, or it. So it's not gender specific. Do you speak Arabic or read I, it? I do not, but uh, yeah. Yeah, simply through studying Ibn Arabi and looking at some uh -huh. of his um, linguistic... You've uh, learned the key words. There are certain key words that are, um, that are very helpful to know, just because there are meanings embedded within them that can be uh, understood in different ways. Uh -huh. So, who started the Bashara school? A man um, by the name of Bulent Ralph. Um, Bulent Ralph was a, uh, a Turk who, um, through his uh, mother, had been exposed to the Sufis uh, throughout his life uh, in Turkey and, um, and had an abiding love. When did he start it? This was in 1972, I believe, was the official founding of the Bashar. So shortly Bashara before Trust. you showed up at the Swai Farm. Yes. Uh, and, and, and a little before that, he'd been in London uh -huh. and uh, uh, had been meeting people and uh, a, a sort of a, a general interest, a buzz developed and a group of people coalesced and, and the school was started. So... I'm sorry, Yes. Ah. Apologies. No? Different people have different breathing patterns. Ah. Getting, getting some more of yours. Getting my breathing. You know, the nose pops down and pops up there. <laughs> uh, just getting more than I should. No, not at all. as a perfectionist, so we get good tape. Oh, that's good. <laughs> well, I hope that's better. I hope we can take out the stutters and everything. Oh, else. yeah, no, no, we're just fine. <laughs> <clears throat> okay, thank you, guys. So, the Bashar School started four years before you showed up at Swai Farm. Yes. Yeah. And uh, was the Bashar school involved in the founding of the Ibn Arabi society, or were those two completely separate uh, processes? Uh, yes, in fact, the Bashar school was involved in the founding, and uh, the inspiration for the Ibn Arabi society came from Bulent Ralph as well. I see. Um, in the 70s, there were very few of Ibn Arabi's works in translation. Uh, one of the few was... Uh, the uh, the Afifi book, the mystical philosophy of Muhyiddin Ibn Arabi, which, which you brought with you today, and uh, and let me just inter interject to say, we're sitting in my living room. <coughs> I've spent the last four months immersed in Ibn Arabi, and so on my coffee table are the twenty-five or so books that I've been reading on Ibn Arabi and his community, yes. and you brought three books with you, of which the mystical philosophy. A four. A four, yes. sorry. The mystical philosophy, philosophy of Muyadin Ibn al-Arabi by A.E. Afifi, A-F-F-I-F-I, mm. uh, which was uh, published in India, is one. And that when, mm. So when you came to it, this was one of the few books available. This is one of the few books available in, in English. And it was a doctoral thesis by uh, any, uh, a student in, uh, in an Egyptian university. Wow. And uh, uh, it formed the basis for the initial teaching materials that the Bashara school uh, used. Extraordinary. Yes. So, so what year was the Ibn Arabi Society founded? Um, I believe uh, uh, that's a good question. I believe 1979 or 78. And were you part of the founding? I was uh, at the first inaugural meeting. Which was in 78 or so? It was, uh, it was around about that time, yes. In, in England? In London, yes. Mm -hmm. yes. And what the Ibn Arabi society has accomplished, or what the culture mm. did, I mean, here's, I went to uh, 
the recent annual meeting of the Ibn Arabi Society where you were presiding in Berkeley uh, in uh, uh, mm. October 2010, this month. And you spoke, and others spoke, about there was almost nothing available of Ibn Arabi in mm. 1978. Mm. So uh, 32 years later, there is this extraordinary body of translations, commentaries, related work. It's as though this figure who was so critically important mm. to the Sufi traditions, to Islam, to Islamic mysticism more broadly, and to many other traditions, um, suddenly re-emerges, at least re-emerges in English, because he was available in French to some degree, wasn't he? The French yes. preceded this. Yes. Uh, but he emerges in English over the last 32 years. Yes. I, I think the Ibn Arabi Society it, it, it was certainly uh, uh, a facilitator, let's say, in bringing this about. And, and we're very, very uh, delighted to have been a part of this movement of bringing out Ibn Arabi. I would say that the uh, society has uh, done an enormous amount of work in promoting the work of Ibn Arabi, um, uh, connecting academics, researchers, translators, students of Ibn Arabi together, and making available a, a forum for people to speak in, in a public way and to publish through the society's journal, which comes out twice every year. Uh, so this has been uh, a, a great delight to see over the space of almost 30 years what, is, what, what has happened with the transformation of the landscape in which Ibn Arabi is now beginning to become a, a much more recognized and much more well-known figure. In your personal evolution, um, do you consider Ibn Arabi your primary spiritual teacher? In many ways, I do. Um, Ibn Arabi, for me, is uh, a towering figure and someone whose teaching has touched me in a way that it's hard to say if anyone else has touched me in, in a similar way, perhaps other than Rumi. But, but Ibn Arabi, um, his teaching is so direct, I find. He is uh, an inspiration for so many people, and I think that what makes him so remarkable is that he can be as much of an inspiration for a devout Muslim who is looking to further and deepen their understanding of their religion, as he can be an inspiration for someone like myself who is not of a particular religious persuasion but nevertheless finds in Ibn Arabi a complete synthesis and understanding and a prescription for a way of living and a way of thinking and a way of being in the world that allows for uh, 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 endless possibility and endless evolution. So how would you describe, in terms of your own inner experience, what, if you were to pick, for example, the three facets of mm. Ibn Arabi's mm. metaphysics and spiritual mm. guidance that have most deeply impacted mm. you. Yes. What are the three that you would start with? I would start with the heart. And um, <clears throat> Ibn Arabi's idea of uh, the, the locus of, of cognition, the locus of knowing, in a very deep way, as a gnosis, a deep gnosis. He, he says it's, 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 it's the heart that is the faculty of perception, you could say, that is the most capable of perceiving or knowing in an immediate way. And what he says about the heart is that it, its unique capacity is in the ability to be able to transcend the, uh, the opposing viewpoints, the paradoxes of, of everything that we see in life, spirit, matter, uh, uh, imminence, transcendence. All of these things, the intellect actually can't really resolve. But the heart has the capability of, of being able to turn 
in such a way and to transform these, uh, these, uh, these apparent uh, irreconcilable uh, differences that we see in our everyday lives in such a way that it is, it is able to transcend them. It is able to unify them and bring them into a meaning that is, that is uh, uh, an inherent property of, of what it is to be human. And what would the second be? Um, the second, I think, is, uh, uh, is mercy. And, um, you know, uh, in, the, in the Quran it is said, uh, God says, you can call me uh, Allah, God, or you can call me Rahman, the merciful. And to me, this is just such a, uh, an astonishing um, statement. And, uh, and again, Ibn Arabi will, will take this saying from the Quran and he will expound on it. And uh, the, the extent to which we are all covered in, in mercy, that we are all uh, bathed in this uh, essential mercy that allows us to be who, what, that allows us to be what we are and who we are, essentially. And is the, is the foundation for our return to knowing who we are. And to our, the return to our source is, if it wasn't for mercy and the mercification of, of, uh, of all existence in this way, there would be no return. And what would the third be? The third, I would say, uh, for me, that has been extremely uh, valuable is the, the idea of, um, let, let us say, the idea of, of barzakh, which is an Arabic word which means um, the meeting place or the, uh, the, uh, the place where two things meet. And this is a, a key concept that is very significant for me in the sense that in the same way that the heart is able to combine and transform uh, the dichotomies and the opposites with which, which we live with, the barzakh is this place where... It's an isthmus. It's an isthmus. Yes, right. it's the meeting of the two seas. Mm -hmm. So it's the place where man or woman, the, this human image as a meaning, appears. So in the self-disclosure of, of God, in, in his self-revelation where God, God, God loves to be known and he manifests the world in order to be known, this is another hadith, um, uh, this, this human form straddles this middle ground, this isthmus between the immanence and the transcendence. And within the meaning of this, uh, of this isthmus is this idea of the, of the perfect human, the insani kamil, which is the potential, if you like, for every human to know themselves in this manner, which is in the same manner as which it is said that God knows himself. Is it true in Ibn Arabi, and I may have this wrong, but that one of the other aspects of this meeting place is that the human capacity, the human imagination uh, is the meeting place be between human aspiration to know God and God's aspiration to reach humanity. Yes, the, the, the imagination in Ibn Arabi is, is a big, is a big uh, theme. And uh, as Corbin has uh, written about extensively as well. But the imagination is, um, is, what is, is what enables this barzakh, this isthmus, to be a property of, of, of the human condition. It, uh, it, um, the imagination is where spirit takes form and where, and where form takes on a meaning. So it is that meeting place where, uh, where the two seas meet. And what is so, I think, so uh, enlightening about this idea of the creative imagination is that at every realm of the human experience, whether it be the physical experience of our world here or the, the inner world of 
say, dreams or visions or uh, other kinds of openings that may happen within the human soul, all of these are encompassed within the, the creative imagination. The imagination is this faculty of, uh, of the human that allows uh, participation in this, uh, this self-disclosure in a way that is unique to the human uh, and, 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 and part of what makes us what we are, as opposed to animals or the plant world or the vegetable world. All of these things, of course, are seen as the self-disclosure of God, but uh, this, is, this is something that is unique to man. It's been so powerful and fascinating for me to immerse myself for the last four or five months in Ibn Arabi and his uh, successors, precursors, uh, and so on. So it's been, I think what's driven me to do, this is the fourth conversation for the new school that we've done. Um, we had this uh, wonderful uh, conversation before with uh, Jim Morris, who, as you know, gave the, one of the keynote talks at the Ibn mm. Arabi Society professor at uh, Boston College, and who wrote, among other things, The Reflective Heart, Discovering Spiritual Intelligence in Ibn Arabi's Meccan Illuminations. Uh, and then another extraordinary conversation with a, a remarkable rabbi, Rabbi Jonathan Omerman, uh, who uh, is, was a student of uh, uh, Rabbi Salman Schechter and uh, discovered uh, Ibn Arabi and learned Arabic and uh, just has found him equally transformative. Another example of Ibn Arabi's reach far beyond Islam to, to people in other traditions. Um, yes. And one of the things that I discovered in this was that a very interesting 20th century school of thought uh, called the traditionalists, uh, Fritz Schoen, René Guénon, Titus Burkhardt, Ananda Kumaraswamy, uh, uh, Syed Hussein Nasser, and others. Have you spent much time reading or reflecting on the traditionalist school of thought? I'll be honest and say I haven't spent a lot of time uh, reviewing the, uh, the material. Um, but clearly they've had a, a very strong influence on, uh, you know, on, Western, on Western culture and Western thought in as much as focusing on the idea of a, of a, of a, a, central, a central theme or a core uh, truth that manifests through the various the various revealed ways. Uh, I think this has been very profound in the West. Mm -hmm. I think that um, there are nuances and differences in opinion. Some traditionists may feel that, that the truth that is being brought through the tradition um, uh, means that the tradition or the vessel which brings it out needs to be observed as well. So uh, some people will say that in order to uh, access this truth or this uh, this vision, say of uh, of Ibn Arabi or another great luminary uh, such as Rumi, would prerequisite for that may be that one has to be a Muslim. Um, so I think that uh, uh, there may be some some distinctions in there and some preferences for certain people that would say it, it, that that is probably true for some people but maybe not true for all. I take that point. I think that's an important point. I, I think uh, what some of the, another version of that would be to say um, that if you really want to progress on in spiritual life, that, you, that, that the assertion would be that you need to adopt some deep tradition whether it be Christian, Jewish, Islamic, uh, Hindu, Buddhist, whatever it is, and that the efforts to follow an esoteric spiritual path in the absence of, of any frame is dangerous. 
And I'm curious because it could be that the Bashar school, for example, teaches something different about that. What is your view of uh, what Houston Smith actually calls uh, uh, flower picking? Uh, in other words, Houston Smith, in his wonderful introduction to Pritchard Schoen's the transcendent, the transcendent unity of the religions, um, has this lovely section where he's talking about uh, the, different, the different approaches you can take to religion. And he's talking about Schoen's key insight, which is Ibn Arabi's, which is the distinction between the essence of all the traditions, which is one, mm -hmm. and then the, ex, ex, the esoteric essence and the exoteric things, which differ according to, as Ibn Arabi said, time, circumstance, and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, Houston Smith goes on to say, if you look at, uh, at the different uh, possibilities of uh, different positions, there's the theological committed tradition, you know, you believe in one tradition. There's the objective detached position, which is that of the scholars. There's the search for a compromise, which, you know, the parliament of religions, you know, trying to do it that way, which he says doesn't work very well either. And then Sean speaks of the unity at the heart of the religions, uh, which is Ibn Arabi's uh, position. Uh, but then, having laid those out, he goes on to say there's one other possibility, which is he calls cut flower esotericism. And... Uh, Cut flower esotericism, he says, our times are witnessing an efflorescence of esotericism, but largely of a rootless variety. Unconvinced by theology, uh, uh, the young especially are looking for experience, direct, unmediated God awareness. Uh, and he says, for Shuan, this amounts to asking for end without means, kernel without husk, soul without body, spirit without letter. So my question to you is... Um, if we might agree that uh, one can indeed read Ibn Arabi without, to great benefit without becoming a Muslim, is your view that, uh, or perhaps the view of the Bashara school, that one can kind of pluck the essential flowers of the great spiritual traditions without subscribing to any uh, tradition as a protection against uh, and a, as a stabilizing force when you're not feeling inspired and move to that level? Well, these are extraordinarily deep questions and uh, uh, I, any attempt to answer will probably lead me into interesting territory. <laughs> but I would say that <clears throat> um, certainly flower picking of the variety that Houston Smith refers to this uh, uh, selective kind of um, personalized type of religion that, that people, uh, as we know, are, have, you know, many people in the West are, 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 you know, have a tendency to do this. <clears throat> so I would say that that is very far from the approach that the Bashara school uh, adopts. Uh, it, it attempts to Establishing each a, a core connection with the real. Ibn Arabi calls this the, the private face. He says that uh, in any way of traveling, in any tradition, in any particular religion or belief that you may have, there's an, inter there's an interior vertical connection, which is who you are. It's the private face. It's your unique private connection to the divinity and to the real. Beyond that, there's no real... <clears throat> um, so if you take that uh, as a sort of a guiding principle, as far as the Bashara school is concerned, there's no prescription uh, to the students of the Bashara school to be of a certain way or not. If someone comes as a Jew or, uh, or a Muslim <clears throat> or as a Christian, no one is dissuaded uh, that that is not the correct way for them. So each way is unique. I think what the Bashara school uniquely um, exposes is a way of traveling or a way of 
um, personal evolution, a way of coming to self-knowledge, is, uh, is, 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 encompassing, is, is an encompassing view where the, where the self-disclosure of God is seen in every tradition. That in Islam, in Taoism, in the Bhagavad Gita, in all the great traditions, the self-disclosure and the meaning of what that self-disclosure is is inherent in all of them. It may be that some people will select one to follow as a, as a personal practice. But the, the, the aim of Bashara is more to establish in each student uh, a vision <clears throat> that is encompassing in that way. Uh, and, and to be able to uh, adopt any perspective rather than to um, say that a particular perspective or a particular tradition is the, is the right one. Now, one of the things that Ibn Arabi says, which I found so beautiful, is that given one's personal predisposition and gifts and so forth, mm -hmm. that one may find that only one approach to the divine opens, say, Christianity, or one may find over the course of a lifetime that two or three open, say Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Or one may find more. But we're talking about deep openings, not mm -hmm. just superficial ones. Mm -hmm. And I think, if I understand Ibn Arabi correctly, that the more openings that you have into different traditions, the more essential your understanding of the divine must become, mm. because it isn't limited to the theology of any specific single tradition, or indeed the common theologies of, let's say, Abrahamic monotheism. That if you have Abrahamic mon monotheism, those three, but you also have found in yoga, Hindu, and Buddhist traditions, say those five, mm -hmm. that something happens to your relationship with the divine. I would say that's very true. Ibn Arabi himself says that, um, <clears throat> that his first teacher was, was Jesus. That's right. Uh, and then he goes on to talk about how he went from um, a Jesus-oriented teaching to a Moses-oriented teaching, then through the prophethood, who is not known in Christianity but is mentioned in the Quran. And then, through, and then eventually to Muhammad. And if you take the, um, the kind of structure of, say, for example, the Fusus al-Hikam, which is one of his key works, he talks about the evolution, the historical emergence of the divine revelation from the time of Adam through to Muhammad. So each, each, uh, each uh, uh, prophet or lawgiver is seen as a particular instance or a particular unique manifestation of the divine wisdom. What that does is it kind of, um, and then of course if you extend that to what we know now in the, in the, in the Western world, we're exposed to the, uh, the Eastern traditions. What that does is it, is it, is it gives a very, a very large um, kind of perspective of what we understand as religion. And um, um, it, uh, it, 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 the, the sweep is, is comprehensive. And according to Ibn Arabi, what, what happens is that through historical time, this prophetic revelation or this message is something that is ongoing. It doesn't stop. So we have historical instances starting with, with Adam and ending with Muhammad. But he says the whole matter of... Uh, of, of, of knowledge progresses through to the end of time. And in Islam, one of the fascinating things to me about studying Ibn Arabi is that up until studying Ibn Arabi, I never had any sense of a really deep understanding of Islam. For me, in my life, the Christian Jewish, uh, Buddhist, uh, yogic, Hindu, and Sufi, tr and and uh, uh, and Buddhist, Christian, Jewish, 
uh, Buddhist uh, yogic traditions had opened up. But the Islamic Sufi tradition had never really opened to me. I'd read Rumi, but it had never really <coughs> opened. But as I, I read Ibn Arabi and became engaged, I began to understand Islam. I began to understand Islam on the Quran. And I think one of the things that happens a lot in the West is, again, we flower pick. We love Rumi. We love Heifetz. Some of us may even get so far as to love Ibn Arabi. But if you really immerse yourself in Ibn Arabi, the beauty of the whole mystical tradition of Islam becomes very powerful. I would say that that's quite true. And um, one, of the, one of the things that one learns about Ibn Arabi is um, most of his work is really commentary on on the Quran, and uh, and astonishing commentary. If if I pick up the Quran and start reading, I you know I I don't I, I as you say I don't have those insights um, directly uh, as the insights that Ibn Arabi gives me when he does commentary on the uh, on the Quran and on the Hadith. And so it, it's it's a very interesting phenomenon for me to see how. Someone so immersed and so embedded within the Islamic tradition, so tied to the key revelatory text, the Quran, um, is able to bring out such astonishing meaning and such depth from it. Um, so yes, it is a it is a very very. Uh, I find Ibn Arabi to be um, a window into into the Quran and and into uh, and into the heart of Islam. <coughs> Excuse me, Ken. Just for example, um, the whole uh, Islamic conception that there were 134,000 prophets, right? And I think that's the right number. It's some large number. I believe it's, I mm. could have it wrong, but some vast number of prophets. And, and therefore, that there was this inclusion of not only Judaism and Christianity as legitimate profound prophetic traditions, but also extending to other religions and really this universal conception taking place at a time of enormous polarization in the exoteric traditions. They were all fighting with each other. You know, they were all killing each other, Christians, Jews, uh, Muslims, all killing each other. And here is Ibn Arabi saying all of these traditions come from a single place. And it was a dangerous thing to say. It was dangerous. There were, uh, there were doctors of the law in Islam who would have liked to see him killed for, for saying that. It's a very dangerous thing to say. He, he was um, unpopular in certain areas and uh, there were polemicists and uh, uh, people like Ibn Taymiyyah who you know, wrote lots of treatises uh, condemning Ibn Arabi for some of the things that he wrote. Um, so yes, it was, it was a difficult time and uh, he did encounter resistance. Uh, uh, in Egypt, I believe there was uh, an attempt on his life. And um, when he wrote his, uh, his book of poetry, the Tarjuman al-Ashwaq, which was um, <clears throat> interpreted by some to be erotic poetry because of the language of love and you know, some of the symbols that come up are the, uh, you know, are the, the beauty of the beloved and how he's, how he's distraught by the beauty. And you know, he, he goes, he, he's very much like Rumi in some ways when, when you read his poetry. It's actually quite astonishing. But uh, he was forced to write a commentary on this book of poetry uh, because it was it was misinterpreted as um, as uh, someone who had fallen in love with a young girl. So let's imagine that some of our listeners want to pursue this further, and they're looking for some good readings. Um, let's start with uh, biographies. Uh, what biography of Ibn Arabi do you find to be the best starting place? There are two that have been very. Um, uh, there are two which I've been very impressed with. One is Claude Adas's biography, which is quite extensive. It's called uh, Quest for the Red Sulphur. 
and it traces um, Ibn Arabi's life in a very remarkable and in-depth way and uh, also summarizes many of the uh, key visions and dreams that he had and uh, openings that he had, meetings with remarkable people and other Sufis and uh, his influence uh, uh, in, in, in that part of the world. A very, a very thorough and, uh, and uh, remarkable work. Um, for the uh, person looking for a shorter and more um, accessible introduction, uh, which also includes a, a biography, The Unlimited Mercifier by Stephen Hertenstein, I think is a very accessible and very easy read and um, uh, opens Ibn Arabi to uh, the, the first-time reader in a, in a way which is very, um, uh, yeah, very, very straightforward and very uh, uh, easy to comprehend format. So those are the two that I found particularly useful. And if you were beginning to read Ibn Arabi himself, where would you start? That's a really good question. Actual source texts. Yes. Um, the, 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 the one book that I find quite accessible is uh, Sufis of Andalusia, which uh, is Ibn Arabi's compilation of the people that he met uh, in, in Andalusia. As a young man. As a young man, before he left Andalusia to travel to the east. Um, it, it's very revealing because it shows many of the encounters that he has with people. He talks about the particular um, knowledge that uh, these various people have, some of their spiritual powers and spiritual uh, experiences. And uh, it's a very accessible kind of work. Mm -hmm. And if you were going on from there to his masterpieces, uh, what would you read? I think that the Fasus al-Hikam is probably the one book that summarizes Ibn Arabi's thought in a way that possibly no other work does. It's 27 chapters. There are perhaps two or three translations available now. Uh, others are being worked on that I, I, I know of. What are the two or three? Um, the two or three are the uh, uh, Ralph Austin's translation. Um, there's a translation by Angela Calm Seymour, which is not a complete translation. It's a partial translation of 14 of the 27 chapters, which is also quite, quite accessible. Uh, those are the two that I'm. Uh, this most is the one with. called the Bezels of Wisdom. The Bezels of Wisdom. Bezel yes. being a term for the setting of a precious stone. That's Correct. Yes. And let's see, the one I have here, is this Austin's translation? Yes, it is. Uh, in the Classics of Western Spirituality, Ibn Arabi, Bezels of Wisdom. Now, Jim Morris takes the view, and I'm curious, that actually Meccan Revelations is easier to read than the Bezels of Wisdom because Ibn Arabi is more discursive about what he has to say. This is his huge masterpiece, right? Yes. Yes, uh, and uh, I certainly wouldn't agree with, wouldn't disagree with Jim on that. Um, I think that the challenge with the Meccan Revelations is that it is so vast. Right. Uh, and there is so much of it. And, uh, but fortunately uh, we have we, we, two volumes. We now have two volumes of, of translations, right. uh, of combined translations from Chittick, Morris, uh, and various other contributors. Mm -hmm. And what about uh, Chittick's The Sufi Path of Knowledge, Ibn Arabi's Metaphysics of Imagination? It's an absolutely invaluable work, I find. Mm -hmm. A very, very good um, uh, uh, set of translations and uh, commentary by, uh, by Chittick on, on Ibn Arabi's work. Now, I'm a little confused here. I think is is the is is the path, the Sufi path of knowledge is that from Meccan revelations or is that something else? It says f from his major work. Al see, I don't know the Arabic. Al Futuhat al Makiva. Al Futuhat al Makia. Makia. That's the same. Okay. So the so it's the it's the the Meccan openings or the Meccan revelations. So 
William Chittick's The Sufi Path of Knowledge, mm -hmm. and then this The Meccan Revelations, uh, edited by Michael Chotkowitz, mm -hmm. are both different paths into this vast, vast work. Yes, Yeah. absolutely. Now, if we go beyond, uh, by the way, let me just mention one other uh, book of his that I found quite accessible, which is a, a book called Journey to the Lord of Power, a Sufi Manual on Retreat. Mm -hmm. And that was his experience on what happens to him yes. on retreat. And that's actually quite easy to, to read. Yes, it yes. Sort of says, you know, if you don't stop here, this is what you experience. Yes, right? yeah. yes, a good, a good work, yeah. absolutely. Yes. Now, if we go from there to some of the great commentaries on uh, Ibn Arabi, uh, two of the ones that, that I found most useful, and I'd love your comments, are um, Michael Chodkowitz's Seal of the Saints, Prophethood and Sainthood in the Doctrine of Ibn Arabi, and Jim Morris's great book, The Reflective Heart. Uh, what, a, what is your sense of these two, and what might you add to these mm. among the interpretive studies? Mm. Well, um, <clears throat> I've read Seal of the Saints, and uh, I've read only parts of the Reflective Heart. The Seal of the Saints is a, a, a very interesting work because it um, exposes Ibn Arabi's unique vision or unique understanding of what sainthood is and what prophecy is and what messengership is. So he goes into great detail um, uh, on these uh, on these matters, and uh, and uh, also uh, it's helpful in um, giving uh, some additional understanding as to why Ibn Arabi is considered uh, such an important figure in the uh, in in the in the Sufi and the Islamic world because of Ibn Arabi's uh, statement that that he was a seal, one of the seals of the um, of the Mohammedan sainthood. And so, uh, uh, you know, and there's, and there's a lot of discussion around this. Uh, Muhammad is the seal of prophecy, and Jesus is the seal of universal sainthood. And, the, uh, and, and these seals are all related in, in complex and, and nuanced ways. And Jesus ways. comes back at the end of time. This is, this is uh, yes, according to, according to Ibn Arabi, um, there, Jesus does come back at the end of time. Mm -hmm. That is correct, mm -hmm. yes. Uh, the Reflective Heart, I think uh, Morris uh, has done a, a superlative job on bringing uh, Ibn Arabi's teachings uh, into a very personable and, um, uh, uh, you know, a livable kind of a format. In other words, uh, I think Morris is a great interpreter in the sense of we are all, in our own way, spiritual speakers, spiritual seekers. How is Ibn Arabi's, how are these lofty ideas, what do they mean to us? And uh, I think he's done a wonderful job of, of bringing the teachings uh, into a way that um, are, are comprehensible and meaningful for individuals. Mm -hmm. Coming back to your own experience and, and where you are today in your journey, um, how does Ibn Arabi speak to you today at this point in your life? He speaks to me today in much the same way as he spoke to me 30 years ago, in, in, in the sense that he continues to be uh, an astounding source of knowledge and inspiration. And um, I have found him to be uh, uh, a guiding inspiration in almost everything that I, that I do. Um, as I get, I think as I get as I get older, and as I uh, as I have um, grown in myself, his uh, his advice and his teaching has become more and more significant for me, and more uh, and, and closer to my real life. And uh, you know, when when he when he gives commentary, uh, such as for example, wherever you look there is the face of God. Um, or, uh, you know, th 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 these, are, these are practical commentaries which I continually try to apply in my, in my, own, in my own life. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that Rumi has been a great source for you 
Yes. Can you say any more about that? Yes. Uh, Rumi is a... Is a great poet. A great, obviously. obviously, yes, a great, a great poet. And um, Rumi symbolizes for me, and, and I think for many people, the flowering or the opening of the human soul when it has been transformed by love, when it's been touched by uh, the divine and, and, and really, really opened up into an astonishing flowering. And I think he manifests that, um, that very human quality of, of longing and uh, the pain of separation and the yearning. And yet he describes it in such a way that you are, what you are left with is not, is not that we are in separation, but that we are in a love affair. And I think this matter of, of, um, uh, of the love affair, which he, which he really beautifully expresses, is so key to, to who we are. And uh, uh, all the trials and the tribulations and the, uh, the, 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 the pain that we suffer in our lives we can go there and we can dwell on those and see them as things that keep us apart. Or we can see them as, 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 the, as the, the quirks and the, um, uh, the, the, the playful moments within a love affair. And when your lover pulls away from you, you feel distant. When your lover approaches you, you feel overwhelmed with, uh, uh, with, with, with longing and joy. So. So he has a way of uh, expressing the condition of, 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 uh, of, the, of the lover and the lover's torment, which I just find absolutely um, wonderful. And I find that Ibn Arabi, um, in a way, ha- g- gives me greater insight into that. Yes. Do, do you see what I'm saying? Absolutely. And, uh, and, uh, and, and deepens my, uh, my, my taste of, uh, and appreciation for Rumi. Which translations of Rumi do you enjoy the most? Well, I still enjoy the, uh, the good old uh, Reynold Nicholson translations, the original ones. Um, Michael Sells has done some... Uh, oh, I'm now, I'm get, now, I'm, now I'm thinking about the Tarjuman. But uh, as far as the Mathnawi is concerned, it, it's, still, it's still Nicholson. Mm-hmm. I, I like the traditional translations. Yeah. 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 And um, the Bashara school, are you still sort of deeply engaged with that, or is that been something that was an important part of your trajectory but is uh, perhaps less important now? It's still extremely important for me. And uh, I return to the school periodically for, uh, for retreats and, uh, and courses. And um, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a constant in my, in my daily life. Where is it in Scotland? You mentioned it's based there now. It's based in the borders in southern Scotland. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, a house set on a hundred-acre estate, um, with uh, uh, a beautiful, beautiful uh, surroundings. Mm-hmm. In, and, and currently, what's, what what the school offers is uh, six-month intensive courses, which are residential. Um, so the um, the kind of education is 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 quite intense and direct. Mm-hmm. One of the things I appreciate so much about the Ibn Arabi society is how much the, the richness of the website. You've done mm. a lot of work. Of course, you're in the software industry, so mm. I imagine that may contribute to the, the beauty of this website. Uh, I was uh, in, uh, involved in the early days to build the original website, and uh, I'm so pleased now that others are continuing to maintain it to see what a rich resource it's become. Because you make a great deal of, of studies and articles available free of charge. Yes, there. that's the beauty about being a nonprofit yeah. Yeah. and loving what you do. Yeah. yeah. And the other thing that I do with the Ibn Arabi Society is manage the, uh, the podcasts. And so what we also do is make available all the talks that are given at, at symposia uh, for free download. Wonderful. In the closing minutes, anything that I haven't asked you that you'd like to add about Ibn Arabi or just the experience of talking together or anything else that crosses your mind? Now, this has been a lovely uh, conversation. I, I find um, that Ibn Arabi is, uh, uh, is such an inspiration that there, there's probably no field 
that I can think of where, where he wouldn't have uh, a place in a conversation, whether it be uh, theology, social sciences, um, uh, even hard sciences, perhaps. But uh, uh, he was, um, um, he was, he's been such a delight to study, and I, uh, I'm, I'm very grateful to him. Nick Yango, thank you for being with us at the New School. Thank you.